Welcome back to Financial Therapy. It's not just about the money. I'm personal financial planner, columnist, and financial therapist, Rick Kaler. Research tells us that 90% of all financial decisions are made emotionally, not logically. For nearly four decades, I've been helping people make better money decisions. So what makes my financial worldview different from most financial experts? I blend the nuts and bolts of financial advice with the emotions that drive making them. Good money decisions are not just about the money. So let's get started with today's episode. Welcome back to another edition. I'm going to talk about something I haven't talked about, which keeps surprising me. I keep finding things <laughs> to talk about that I haven't talked about on the podcast. And that's uh, the notion of the financial comfort zone. This is something that was developed with the Klontzes, oh, I don't know, what, 15 years ago? And it's still uh, very relevant to how we live our lives, how money scripts, what, what I want to say, assemble to drive all of our decisions. And why so many money scripts are just super reinforced in us to the point that we, we just can't see it any other way. All right, let me illustrate what this is by a current event that happened. Uh, and you may have heard of this, you may have not have heard of this, uh, but it happened at a very uh, prestigious business school called Wharton. Wharton School of Business. It's the second highest ranked business school in the U.S. behind Stanford. And so as, as I go into this, let me ask you this question. Same question that the professor asked her students. What would you guess the average American worker makes in a year? Go ahead, make a guess, note it, Obviously, you're not going to have to reveal this, so just be completely honest with what, what comes up for you. Um, so this was the question that Professor, Professor Nina Strominger at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business asked her business students recently. This isn't the first time that she's asked this question. Apparently, she asked this question often, you know, for years of her classes. She's the uh, professor of legal studies and business ethics. And I, I caught this in a news article in the Philadelphia Inquirer. And so the interesting thing is that she reported some of the findings in a Twitter. And her tweet set the Twitter sphere ablaze because she tweeted that 25% of her class guessed the average American made a six-figure salary. Now that's something $100,000 or more, right? She said one of them thought the average American worker made $800,000. The real number, she said, was 45000 Now, 
this just um, caused an uproar in the Twitter sphere, uh, talking just about how outrageous this was, that here are the business students of the second most respected business school in the nation, arguably uh, students that were going to go on to careers, very important careers in business and government, uh, uh, potentially affecting policy. Uh, maybe some of them would even become uh, politicians. And just uh, a rage of, of how out of touch these students were with average America. And indeed, <laughs> they were, right? I mean, at least at 25%. The average wage in the United States, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, is just over 56000 The median income is about 42000 Now, okay, I'm, I'm kind of a numbers geek, even though I'm a financial therapist. I guess that goes hand in hand. And I, I need to explain the difference between average, also referred to as mean, taking you back to your statistics classes, and median, right? The average is, is when we lump everybody together and divide by the number of everybody's we have. So for example, let's say we have three salaries, one of 20,000, one of 40,000, and one of 90,000. If we added all those together, 20, 40, 60, 90 is 150, right? We divide by three, the average salary is 50,000. Now, nobody in our sample makes 50000 but that's the average, right? However, the median just says you pick the middle number of the whole data sample. So, in our case, the middle number is 40000 So, our median salary is 40. Our average salary is 50, and it's very common that the average is more than the median. So that's when we say that the average wage is 56, but the median wage is 42,000. That means that all of the higher income earners uh, drive up the average. Okay, that's, that's that lesson. The other interesting statistic here is that the national median income for a household, and you've heard that before, in the U.S., I think it's around $52,000, 53000 But a household is made up of non-family households and family households, meaning a non-family household is not related and the family household is. 
And actually, as I'm looking at these numbers, I'm thinking uh, it's probably closer to maybe maybe the median household. It might even be 58 or 60,000. Anyway, it's not important. What is interesting is that the non-family household uh, median income is 40,000, but the median family household is 86,000, quite a bit more. Well, why would that be? Well, I can think of uh, my kids who are in their 20s and in various phases of going to college and getting started in their careers. They both have roommates and I can guarantee you the income of that non-family household is definitely dragging down <laughs> the numbers because there isn't much earned, right? So with the family household, that's usually um, a parent, right? A parent, a married couple. And the, that income is over twice the non-family income and makes some sense. All right, uh, I kind of went down a rabbit hole there, but I thought it was interesting when you see these numbers, you've got to ask yourself, okay, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about average incomes, median incomes? Are we talking about household incomes or individual incomes? And it can all get very confusing. The whole point here, getting back on topic, is obviously the average American earns under $100,000 a year, whether it's their, their individual wage or even their family income wages. So that put those 25% of those students really out of touch with the average American. Now, so, so just about everything I've read on this was negative. And as I really looked at that and analyzed the numbers and thought about it, I said, well, first of all, what wasn't really brought out in any of the news articles was that 75% of the students guessed the average income of under 100000 So I'm guessing <laughs> that the, the majority of the class got it right or got it close. So what was going on with the 25% of the students that were so far out of touch with reality? I, th I think the first thing we've got to do is give them a little grace that they're college students. You know, so many research numbers in financial therapy, but in finance in general, come from college students. Why? Because the researchers are typically professors and uh, their students that are doing the research. And it makes sense that the samples and, and people that they use to respond to the surveys are often college students. So I'm working with a research project right now on trying to understand risk tolerance and really trying to take a deeper dive into the psychology of risk tolerance and specifically not not the macro psychology but the micro psychology of the person how this individual is wired and as I've been uh, some of my clients are uh, beta testers for this 
and we're getting quite different reactions or data from my clients who are all adults who uh, I guess you could arguably say do money well because all of the initial data was gathered from college students. So it can make uh, quite a bit of difference. But okay, I think we can we can cut them a little slack there. But there's a bigger factor at play here. I think it makes perfect sense that the 25% of these students thought that the average family made six figures. And remember, the one of the underlying premises of this podcast is that every financial behavior, no matter how illogical it might seem to you or other people, makes perfect sense when we understand the underlying belief. And in this case, it's the underlying experience. What do you think the median family income of a Pennsylvania University student is? Now, this is a general student, not just a student of the Wharton School of Business. Take a guess. You probably know, hmm, he wouldn't be going down this rabbit hole if it wasn't six figures. And you're right. The New York Times says the average, or not the average, the median family income of these students is $195,500. All right? Now, that's, that's what these kids have grown up with. That's normal. So, I think, um, I th I think we, we got to cut them a little slack there. I mean, the average tuition at Wharton is $55,000 a year. That $55,000 is equal to what the average American worker makes. Now, not I know some of you are saying, well, not every kid at these Ivy League schools is paying the, the full load, and that's true. But still, their frame of what's normal for them is a six-figure household income. So I don't think the real story here is how, how out of touch 25% of the class was with reality. I think the story could be that 75% of the class, which came from these uh, households where six-figure incomes were normal, didn't let their personal family economic standing cloud their view of reality. They got it right. So the 25% that thought the average was six, six figures, they didn't get it right. Um, but I don't think they're to be condemned for that. I mean, consider this. How many of us thought our family's economic standing was normal as a young kid. I would venture to say almost all of us. Now, as we grew up, we probably became more and more sensitized that we fit into the economic norms of where we were raised, which was probably the case for most of us. But there's some of us that started recognizing everybody around us was more privileged, had a lot more money, than our family did, or vice versa. 
that our family had a lot more money than everybody else. But if you're raised in an environment uh, going to schools where the average lifestyle is based on a $200,000 household income, that's normal, right? And you're probably the rich kid if your family's making a couple million a year, and you're probably the poor kid if they're making 56000 a year. So I think, I think we need to give that some understanding. Most of us tend to hang out with people who are in the same financial comfort zone as ourselves. And the financial comfort zone is something that um, was introduced, I think it was in facilitating financial health originally, and then also expanded upon in Wired for Wealth with uh, books I co-authored with the Clonses. And a financial comfort zone is, um, is, a, is an intriguing concept. It, um, it's used to explain people who share a, sim a lot of similarities, right? Their money scripts typically are very similar. Their incomes, their lifestyles, their spending, saving, their habits, all of these things are typically similar. I mean, think of the neighborhood uh, that the average, that, that most people live in. Typically those neighborhoods are made up people that are similar to themselves. Uh, even cities can have uh, certain uh, philosophical flavors. So we tend to, to gather people that are similar to ourselves. And, and so our financial comfort zone is our financial neighborhood or our financial culture. It's not necessarily our physical neighborhood, but it's, it's our financial, what, where we run financially. Uh, in this uh, financial comfort zone, we can give unique meaning to universal words. We can have different meanings to what it means to be financially independent or what it means to be conservative or what it means to be liberal, liberal or what um, um, it means to retire. All sorts of words can take on different meanings within the comfort zone. And the comfort zone typically is framed by money scripts. So as long as we go along and we're in this financial comfort zone, things are familiar to us, right? And the more narrow the comfort zone, the more inflexible our money scripts are. So money script that is you must work hard for money. The money will always be there. I don't deserve money. Women should never have to work outside of the household. Just strong, strong words make a money script more inflexible. When you have can, when you have may, that, uh, well, you may work hard for money and the money will come in. That's not a real strong money script. 
because that opens your understanding that, well, you might work hard for money and money come in, but you might not work hard for money and money come in. So the, the more rigid our money scripts are, the more narrow our comfort zone is. And this is where we feel familiar. And it's, it's when we break out on the upside or the downside of that, that comfort zone where we become discomforted and things start going off the rail and, and we unconsciously try to get back to that comfort, comfort zone, whether it's getting going up to get back into it or going down. But that's, that's not really the point of this, of what I want to say here today. For people growing up in these wealthy families, normal uh, probably included private schools, international travel, uh, live-in household help, expectations of an Ivy League education like uh, Wharton, and uh, probably followed by a career earning six figures. So that was their, their financial comfort zone. Those growing up in families with limited incomes, lower incomes, more average or median incomes, uh, inhabit a lower financial comfort zone. So their normal might include shopping at thrift stores or squeaking by from month to month and not having much expectation of a higher education. So now these zones are what's familiar. They are artificial. The, the boundaries are artificial. The boundaries are imposed on ourselves. They're not necessarily defined by what we can or we can't afford. And they're not necessarily constructed in reality. But reality is all about perception, isn't it? It's about what we perceive reality to be. So the fact that 25% of the professor's class thought their family's economic standing was average, it's not surprising. It was a skewed perception of reality. But it was no different than anyone else in America when they are coming from their comfort zone, what their perception of reality is. So this dynamic is um, not unusual. It is not limited to economics. I mean, when you take a look at um, where we're coming from in our various comfort zones politically, especially today, our comfort zones on where we stand viewing uh, the um, uh, COVID-19, we tend to definitely come from our understanding of reality and our understanding of how we see the world. So, of course, the, the sad thing that was illustrated by this particular story when these 25% of these students were just flamed for being out of touch with reality, they weren't out of touch with their reality. They were in touch with, with their reality, but that was not the answer to the question. So I just think we need to um, give some grace and give some understanding that 
every illogical financial belief makes perfect sense when we understand the underlying belief system, the underlying experience. So I hope uh, that's been um, helpful. You know, what, what's your financial comfort zone? What is familiar to you? How do you view the world? Who are the people you hang around with that have similar financial beliefs to you, have similar incomes, have similar money scripts that are just reinforcing what normal is? We all do this. So to, to that extent, it's always challenging to us to kind of uh, pop our head out of our financial comfort zone and take a survey of the world and other people and start, start seeing that um, our views are not necessarily um, common or not necessarily held by everybody else. And this can be um, a hugely impactful experience in our own financial growth and especially in reframing our money scripts to understand that our money scripts are partial truths. That means they're also partial falsehoods and they are not accurate in every financial circumstance. So to the degree that we can modify and work on our money scripts, we can begin to widen our financial comfort zone to where we can become um, more and more familiar, more and more comfortable with views and things that don't exactly line up with our life experience. So, thanks so much for joining me today. And I look forward to being with you again next week. Take care. Thanks for joining me, Rick Kaler, for another episode of Financial Therapy. It's not just about the money. This is where I combine the nuts and bolts of financial advice with the emotions that drive making them. Remember, every financial behavior, whether it appears illogical to you or others, makes perfect sense when we understand the underlying beliefs feelings, and thoughts. Sign up for my weekly blog at financialawakenings.com. I hope you'll join me again for our next episode.